I know a lot of us are waiting on them right now. You've been praying, you've been hoping, you've been trusting, you've been struggling, and you don't see what the next step might be or could be or should be, and, and yet we have his word to rely on today. So how, how blessed we are, even in the midst of storms, amen? And so if you thank you for remaining standing as we turn our attention to his word that we trust, and we're back in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to get through verses 4 through verse 25 today, Genesis chapter 2, and encourage you to uh, take some notes. This is kind of a, going to be a whirlwind. There's a lot in front of us this morning, and I won't be able to hit everything, but we're going to hit what I believe God has for us today as we look at humanity, God's crowning jewel of his creation. So it's a long passage. Let me just together read the first verse of our passage, uh, Genesis 2, verse 4. If you can put that verse up on the screen there, brother, thank you. Let's read this together. You can just read it off the screen with me. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. Let's read it together. Ready? These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Amen and amen. Before us is God's holy word this morning. May he write its truths deeply on our hearts as we go to him once more and ask his blessing upon his, uh, this time together. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for your word that as we just sung that we rely on, Lord. Thank you that we can wait on you and know you are a very has, present help in time of our need. And so today, God, as we come to your word, I pray that we would grasp some truths here that would help us in our pursuit of knowing you and being like Christ. We can't do this apart from the work of your Holy Spirit, so would you do that work today, please, Lord? We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. May please be seated and and keep your Bibles open there to... Genesis chapter 2, we're coming off of going through creation. We spent the first week in our study of Genesis introductory on the first uh, two verses, and then we covered the rest of chapter 1 and into the beginning of chapter 2 last week, and we looked at the six days of creation last week and, and how God spoke the universe into existence with and by his powerful word, and today we come to now what is a, a, a zoom in. A lot of times you'll hear in, in secular writings and such or those who want to doubt the Bible that, oh, this is a whole separate creation account. And it's not. It's, it's, it's just a zooming in of, of what God did in, in, day, uh, in six days. He zooms in on day six here. And the, the reason being is because God is taking time to highlight His crowning jewel of His creation, which is us. It's humanity. It's human beings created in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. And there is massive implications for this, for what it means to be created in the image of God. The Bible says that man, in male and female, all of mankind, all of humanity, all of, the, of all the creatures, was uniquely created in God's image. And as such, we have this profound capacity and, and a profound ability to reflect God's image 
Created in God's image to be able to reflect that image. We, have, we alone, of all of the creatures of the earth, we alone, created in the image of God, can reflect that, can mirror that to the rest of creation. Can mirror the very character of God, the, the, the spirit of God, the communication of God, the relationship, the morality, the knowledge, the, the thought, the, the action, the, these things that make us human. It's because we are His crown jewel of His creation. We have, as such, an origin in the divine purpose of God. We have a a destiny in eternal glory that the Father has prepared for us from the foundation of the world. And so everything that happens between creation and consummation matters. Every event, every thought, every deed, every work, There is no secular and sacred. It's all sacred. It's all an act of worship to God. Everything we do, every action, your job tomorrow, your your schoolwork, your, 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 your eating lunch later today, it's all worship for God. We have this profound capacity to reflect the glory of God in and through the things that we do and who we are. It matters how we treat people. It matters how we see people. It matters that we value life in, in, in every human life, in every stage. We're called to love them as we love ourselves. Next week, today, is the idealistic picture of beauty and glory as we look at chapter 2. Next week, we trip and fall. <laughs> Next week, Pastor David's going to bring us into chapter 3, and we're, we're going to look at this image not erased, not eradicated, but distorted. Because we can look around and say, man, that picture you're painting, the picture the Scripture paints of humanity is, is glorious and beautiful, and it is, but man, we look around or we turn on the news and we don't see it as such often, don't we? We see a mess. We can even look at our own lives sometimes and see the mess we make of things. But what happened? Well, the fall certainly diminished and distorted God's image, but it did not erase it. So we'll look at that more next week, but today I get the profound privilege of, of presenting the good news, the good part. <laughs> Arkant Hughes wrote this, thinking of the image of God in man. He said, though you could travel a hundred times the speed of light, past countless yellow-orange stars to the edge of the galaxy and swoop down to the fiery glow located a few hundred light-years below the plane of the Milky Way. Although you could slow to examine the host of hot young stars luminous among the gas and dust, though you could observe close up the the proto-stars poised to burst forth from their dusty cocoons, Though you could witness a star's birth in all your stellar journeys, you would never see anything equal to the birth and wonder of a human being. For a tiny baby girl or boy is the apex of God's creation. But the greatest wonder of all is that the child is created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. The child was, once was not Now, as a created soul, he or she is eternal. He or she will exist forever. When the stars of the universe fade away, that soul 
shall still live. This is the beauty and glory of God's crowning work of creation, humanity. Now, as I say that, I want us to know from the outset, as glorious as this crown jewel is, God wears the crown. It's His crown. And so the story, even of humanity, ultimately is all about Him. It all points to His glory. And so He remains the star and the focus of the show. This is His story, ultimately, and we as his people, are so blessed to be a part of it. But so, so the highlight, as, I, as we go through this chapter this morning, we're going to do it in three, thing, three, three steps, three stages, three points, and all of them point to the covenant God. Point number one, the covenant God of creation, we'll look at in verse four. Point number two, the covenant God of man in verses five through 17 as he forms man in his image. And then lastly, we'll close with the covenant God of marriage and look at one of the, the, at the greatest gift that God gives us as human beings of marriage. So point number one, the covenant God of creation. Moses writes in verse four, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And that word generations is a, pay attention to it because we're going to see it again. It's the Hebrew word toledot. And it, it, it's a word that, that's a signal marker for the beginning of each of the ten different sections, if you will, ten different books of Genesis. Each time it mentions the toledot, it, it, it's beginning of a new major section of Genesis. And so, as, as I mentioned last week, I think the first three verses of chapter 2 should have been part of chapter 1, and now we start a whole new section. The word toledot, it... it is translated generations. It can also be translated as, as history. It's from the, the root word that, that means to bear children. And so when you see all of the genealogies and the generations, that's where the word comes from. And it, in essence, it speaks of what is produced or what is brought into being by someone. And so it, in essence, what it means here in, in the beginning of this magnificent section is, is this is the history of the universe. This is, this is the following is what became of the universe, what the universe generated, if you will, rather than preceding the account of creation. And so here, here is what's happened in the history. And this begins this major section. It's the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created and in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And I want you to notice two things. One, I want you to notice that it's flipped because this is a chiastic form of of Hebrew poetry where initially he begins with the heavens and the earth and now he flips it to the earth and the heavens. Why? Because he's focusing. He's coming down. He's saying we just looked at the celestial galaxies created in the universe and now we're coming down to God's planet earth think about that our little ball we're not the largest planet in the solar system there's many larger but but we are the center of in the in the sense of we are the focus of god the rest of it it's important it's all for his glory but what god does happens on earth and so we're going to look in the earth and look at the importance of what what it means and what it is for God and for man. And then one very, very important thing to note here is that in chapter 1, every time God is mentioned in, in English Bible, we'll say God, but now Moses particularly adds something else to it. He says the Lord God. He's using the two different names of God. God is Elohim, 
Lord is Yahweh. And so there, Elohim speaks of, of God. It, it's, it's the transcendent God. It's the powerful God. It's the, the ruler, the king, the creator God. It's the magnificent view of God. When we speak of Elohim, this is, this is, the, this is God of creation. But then Moses combines these, these names of God to now bring in Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh being the covenant name of God for His people. It means the existing one. It's the, the I am, the one who exists. And it's the name that God Himself uses to give to His people as the covenant name that they call Him by. And so it, it's this combination of names of God, Yahweh Elohim, that, look, that, that basically tell us who God is for His people. Because remember the context. The context is the Israelites have just left hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt and they're, they're going to go to the promised land. They're in the wilderness. They need to know and learn about who God is. They've left the pagan land. They're going into a land surrounded by pagan nations. God has called them to be a light to those nations. They need to know who He is and what He's like. And so these names express that. He's the all-powerful Creator of heaven and earth. Greater than, than any of the false gods that these pagans worship. And He's your covenant God. He's your God. He's intimate. He's close. He's personal. He's for you. He's with you. Yahweh, Elohim. The Creator is also Israel's covenant God. And Yahweh, Elohim, wears the crown of humanity. Point number two, the covenant God of man. The covenant God of man. We're going to look at this in a few different stages. Letter A, the creation of Adam from Adama, or you could say Adam from Adama. And you'll see that is the word that is used here of the ground, of the dirt, of the dust. Verse 5, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work on the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And so we have these first two verses, five and six, that, of this section that provide the setting, if you will, for the creation of, of human life. And, and, and man, we could go deep into this because there's a whole lot said about this in many different commentaries, and, and, and not everybody fully agrees on what it means, but here's the point of this. The point of this is the setting for man, that this was a time before there was any wild shrubs, if you will. This was a time before there was any cultivated grains. And so they're, they're, they're saying the weeds are, are in, you know, before the weeds were in the ground to, to pull up and, and before there was any crops that had been put in and planted. Why? Because there was no man. And that's his point of this. There was no man to work the ground. The world had yet to flourish with fertility. God was preparing for abundant growth. But when joined with verse 7, as we'll see in just a second, this part of the passage, it, it plays this subordinate role about the, the green stuff. Because before the earth could flourish under God's blessing, God focused His attention on the crowning point of creation, which is human life. He's saying the earth was created for man. And then man was created to serve the Creator. Verse 7, Then the Lord God 
which con who continues to be the main character, Yahweh, Adon Yahweh Elohim, formed the man of the, of the dust of the ground. This word formed is important. It's used throughout the Old Testament as the word for a potter. And that's the idea behind it is, is the Lord God, the, the covenant God of, of, of His people. He, he, he takes His creation and he, he forms it and fashions it like a potter fashions clay. It speaks of intimacy. It speaks of closeness. It speaks of, of a handiwork, of, of actually hands. You ever seen a potter on a potter's wheel? Anybody ever done pottery before? It's a little too messy for me, you know. I don't like my hands getting dirty, but, but some do. And you want to get in there, and I see them, you know, they spin the wheel, and they just, they form it and fashion it, and they're this close to it. That's the picture we get here. That as a potter, God works with His hand closely and personally and intimately as He forms Adam from the dirt. The image is deliberate. It's, it's not accidental. It's deliberate creation. Purposeful creation. The, the same metaphor, it's interesting to note as well, is also used for the creation of every human being. In, in Job chapter 10, verse 8 and 9, it says, Your hands fashioned and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay, and will you return me to the dust? Same word used. You formed and fashioned me. I am made by you. These words speak of God's handiwork. And it's interesting then, he goes on, he formed the man from where? From the dust of the ground. Verse 7. From the dust of the ground. That word man is Adam. That's literally, we call him Adam, that's his name, but it's literally what the word for man, one of the words for man there is Adam, and the word, and so you see the poetry that's being used, the Hebrew word for the ground, or the dust of the ground, is Adama. So God forms Adam from the Adoma. He's fashioned. He's formed. A natural body is given and created for an earthly existence from the dirt itself. And it goes on and says, And God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Oh, these words are so beautiful as well. Breath of life. Get the picture. God is, is formed and fashioned like clay, this body, this, this man, this Adam. He's taken the Adama and he's, he's formed it just the way he wants it, but there's this lifeless body laying there. And God himself gets close enough to get right up to the face of man and to, to blow his breath right into the nostrils of Adam. The breath of life. Animals have breath. They breathe. But it's the intention of Moses to help us understand that their breath is different than our breath. Our breath is the very breath of God himself. I've read some commentators who have even said that God's covenant name is sounds when you say it in Hebrew like the sound of breath breathing in and out. Yahweh. To where everyone breathing is speaking the name of God, owing their existence and their very breath to Him. This is the breath of life. Human beings have the very breath of God sustaining them having been given the life of God himself. 
And he says that man became a living creature, a living soul. It's translated in other versions. Nepes is the word. And it's helpful to understand what separates us and to understand that, that, that you, this is what you are. You are a living creature. You are a living soul in contrast to the Gnostic mindset of, of those who would say, you, you have a soul. You know, scriptural, biblically, you are a living soul. You were created, body, soul, spirit. You are a whole, an integrated whole. This is the way God has made us. We also move on as we see that man becomes a living creature and we see God place Adam in the garden temple, letter B. Verse 8 says, And the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there He put the man whom He had formed. The garden here is important. It's from a a root word that means to be enclosed or fenced off and and protected. It's... So it's, it's denoting this enclosed, protected area where, where the greenery flourishes, the flora flourishes, the trees grow big and, and are fruitful, and the, the lush vegetation is here. It represents this, this territorial space in the created order where God invites human beings to enjoy bliss and, and harmony between themselves and God between one another, between animals and the land. And, and God is uniquely present here in Eden. Scriptures will see that He walks through Eden. He walks through the garden. The Garden of Eden is a temple garden or a garden temple. It's going to be represented later in the tabernacle and the temple. It's a fascinating study when you begin to see that God's creation itself was created as a temple for His worship, for His glory, and then specifically the Garden of Eden. Eden comes from a Hebrew term. It it means pleasure. It means delight. It it speaks of lush fertility. And so we see this, this lush, fertile place in our minds, and then there's this river. Eden also is spoken of as a mountain. A mountain place where the waters flow down and, and, the, and there's a river we'll see in a minute that flows down and breaks off into multiple rivers. It, it flows through and waters the land and, and flows out to the world to water the whole land. It's a paradise. It's the ideal sanctuary. We see this word east mentioned that he planted it. Again, Scripture words are important. Planted a garden in the east. And that is where the sun rises and it represents light and, and life versus the sunset. And twice we are told in this chapter that God Himself put Adam in this garden. In verse 8 and verse 15 we'll see. And this is God's way of, of telling us, of saying to us as human beings, this is where you belong. That's where you belong. Paradise is where you belong. That's what I made you for. This original dwelling place wasn't just a home for humans. It was also a home for God. It was God's temple. It was the place where where heaven and earth come together. Where God is enjoyed and God is worshipped and glorified. 
And we probably wouldn't just look at first glance and read through Genesis and notice this, this temple mind, understanding and language, but when we compare the features of the Garden of Eden to the features of the tabernacle and the features of the temple, and, and finally the new heavens and the new earth that we see in Revelation 21 and 22, all these places where God and humans come together. We see this incredible, striking similarities. Even the mention of the word east in the east. The entrance of the temple in Jerusalem was, if you're aware, to the east on a mountain that was facing Zion. And just as the end-time temple of Ezekiel prophesied is also to the east. Well, it turns out the entrance to Eden was from the east. We'll see that next week in verse 24. And in some places, like Ezekiel 28, it's pictured again as being on a mountain. So both the Garden of Eden and the Temple Tabernacle were places where God dwelt. Graces where God walked around, if you will. And in, in which people were to cultivate and, and were to guard. Both were, were set on a mountain and faced the east. Both had, had garden-like features, including a tree near the middle. In the Garden of Eden, we'll see it's the tree of life. And in the tabernacle, this tree was, was the menorah. It was this tree-like lampstand. And both were adorned with, with gold and, and onyx. And both had, had rivers flowing from them. And, and both, as a consequence of humans' sin, were bound by cherubim, garden, guardian angels, protectors, keeping humans from entering God's presence without a sacrifice. In Eden, these are actually real angelic beings that we'll see come into play in the next chapter. And in the tabernacle and the temple, these were pictures of angelic beings, cherubim that were embroidered uh, into the curtain that divided the innermost room of God's presence, the Holy of Holies. And what is God wanting to show with all this imagery here? What does He want us to understand? He wants to show us where we belong. He shows us His home, His temple. And this is why God gives us the description of the Garden of Eden, not, not to send us on a quest to search for it like some Indiana Jones movie, but to tell us where we belong is with Him. His crowning jewel belongs with Him. He created the world for mankind to serve Him as, as priests, kings in His temple. Verse eight, or excuse me, verse nine goes on and says, "And out of the ground, Yahweh Elohim made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food." What a beautiful description of this garden! Every tree pleasant to the sight. Think about that. He attracts us by showing it to be a place of beauty. It all looks amazing, and he says it's good for food. If you don't have a favorite Bible verse, maybe that can become your favorite Bible verse. Good for food. Yes. I love food. Aren't you thankful for good, tasty food? When God shows us where we belong, He shows us a place that's not only beautiful, but it's bountiful. A place that is supremely satisfying. And I love this, that life in the garden is represented as, as a banqueting table. Good food that's delightful to the eyes. 
showing us humanity had no need to eat the forbidden fruit. There was so much there. Let her see the two trees. We see the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What's this tree of life? God, God gives us these pictures, if you will, the, these, these trees to underst- help us understand some things that transcends the natural. In Proverbs, we see throughout the book, the tree of life, it's used to, to really represent life. Anything that heals, that enhances, that, that celebrates life. Things like righteousness, tree of righteousness, a, a longing fulfilled, a tongue that brings healing. The tree of life is mentioned first, but, but Adam and Eve focus on the second tree. The primary quest ever since of humanity has been power, not life. We see this tree of life in the middle of the garden and then we see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The knowledge that creates ethical awareness as, as Adam and Eve later experience when they discover their nakedness which is a symbol of their vulnerability, of their, their ability to use or abuse God's good gifts. Unless we know everything, we only know it relatively. Think about that. Unless we know comprehensively, we cannot know absolutely. And so human beings, by creation, human beings depend upon revelation. God must speak. Revelation from the only one who actually has absolute knowledge, comprehensive knowledge, pure and perfect knowledge. And so this tree represents knowledge and power that is only appropriate to God. Human beings, by contrast, desire his autonomy or or their own autonomy, desire that power, that, that knowledge, that understanding. And so the true trees stand in the garden, and they're not magical. They're, they're, they're visible, and, but they're visible as, as signs, they're as sacraments, if you will. The tree of life is a reminder to Adam that God who planted the tree is the author of life. You are a cre- creature. You're not the creator. God alone is the creator. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil serves to, to teach that, that God not only sustains life, but governs all of life. That what He says goes. That what He defines is the definition. And so when He defines good and evil, that's what it is. And it's for our good to live in obedience and submission to God, to His Word, to what He says, to His ways. And if Adam breaks the covenant, then the blessing of the garden is forfeited. There's also rivers of life in the garden, letter D. Verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth is the river Euphrates. 
Now, what's going on here? Why bring up these rivers? Well, there's a few different reasons. It shows, number one, the historicity and the geography of what Moses is writing to the people of his day. They would know these places. Now, there's the, the first two places here, the Pishon and Gihon, their identity is, we're not sure. All the best scholars aren't quite sure where those actually were, uh, possibly somewhere in, in Arabia and such, because Havilah is in Arabia, and, and so it could be identified with Arabia, maybe the Persian Gulf, some have suggested, but that's really not the point. The point is, is the rivers are the rivers that bring life. Water is life to our planet. And God is pointing at himself and all these pictures as I'm the source of life. The waters go out of the garden and water the whole land. This this indicates this cosmic wholeness. This indicates the the spread of the blessings of Eden everywhere, providing food and and healing. It's, It's symbolic of the springs of living water, the life that issues from the throne of the living God. We see gold in the land of Havilah mentioned that God even provides for for humanity's enrichment outside of the garden even. This is how how abundant He is, how generous He is. And then we see in letter E, Adam is given a commission, Adam's work. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Work it. And keep it. Those words are really important. Number one, it's important for us to understand and establish that work is a blessing. Can I get an amen? (laughs) That work is not a part of the curse. Work is harder because of the curse. There's, There's things that will fight against us in our work. But work itself is a blessing of God that mankind was created for. It, it's, it's even tied to our identity. We're not to worship it and identify ourselves with it in such a way that it becomes an idol. But it's a part of who we are. That's why you see, for instance, that, how many times have you heard the stories of people that, that, that you know, work for their full careers and then, and then they, they retire from whatever work they were doing and they're, they're lost from then on. They feel useless and oftentimes there's a quick death because they've lost the sense of what they were created for. The activities of, of serving and, and working. Work is a blessing. Work is a gift from God. It's not a punishment for sin. And Adam is placed in the garden to work. It says God put him in the garden to work it and keep it. Now those words, work, cultivate, it could be another word. It, abad it's, is the word and keep, samar. It, it's, it, the same two words are actually translated elsewhere in the Old Testament, serve and guard. And those are actually wonderful translations because when they appear together, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, they're either referring to Israelites serving or obeying God's Word, or more usually to the job of the priest in guarding and keeping the temple. Adam is put in God's temple, garden temple, to to be a priest, to serve God there in this garden temple, to, to work it, to cultivate it, and to keep it, to guard it. What a blessed task Guarding, protecting, maintaining the temple. Work given to Adam as a blessing. 
passed on even to us as His, his in, in, in inheritors of, of this blessing. We ourselves, as the people of God, are priests in God's temple world with a commission to, to work it and to keep it. Adam and Eve didn't do their job very well. We'll find out again next week. Unfortunately, they should have driven out the serpent. They did not guard the, the temple. They did not guard the garden. And instead, their failure to, to obey God drives them out. Another interesting word here is the little word put. He put him in the garden. It's actually from a Hebrew word that means rest. It means placed in this passage. He, he rested him, it could be translated, in the garden. And it shows that there's a reference, if you will, to I'm putting you, I'm placing you into this promised land, this beautiful place. We see a connection as well with Sabbath rest. A resting, listen, you might not think it goes together, Work and rest. I'm resting you here to work. But that is the way that we as Christians are to function. Our service, our labor, our work, our guarding, our keeping is to flow out of the place of rest. It's not a, a, a serving, a working to try to gain the rest. Too many people are just working for the weekend, right? Ah, oh, just get to the end. Instead of, of being encouraged by the God of rest and resting in Him and then allowing everything in our lives to flow out of that as we work for Him. We were created to work and serve God for His glory. Letter F, we see the Lord God's Word. So He puts Adam a commission to work and keep the garden. Then the Lord God speaks Verse 16, and he commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Again, abundant generosity going on here, right? The, the bounty of Eden, it's just it's consistent with the way God woos us to his dwelling place throughout the Bible. You ever, you ever thought about that? What does it mean to, to be with God? What does it mean to dwell with God? And you know how scripture answers that? It's like a feast. It's a it's a feast. It's a banquet. It's a beautiful dinner. Not only where the people are bringing food to God, but where God's bringing food to you as His people. He's feeding us. Think of the Scriptures. You, you prepare a table before me, David sings in Psalm 23. Come, all you who are thirsty. The invitations just ring out loud and clear. Come to the waters. And you who have no money, come and buy and eat Come and buy wine and milk without money and without cost, Isaiah 55. Even the call to be wise, which is another way of describing living life in the presence of God, it's presented as a formal, as a dinner invitation. Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I've mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight, Proverbs 9. Isaiah 25, on this mountain... And remember, the mountain signifies the dwelling place of God. The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. Oh, how beautiful it is. Jesus himself told us, I'm the bread of life. He said the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding feast. He turns his first miracle 
He performs at a wedding feast and, 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 and he turns water into wine. He, he supplies something not strictly necessary for survival, but something given by God for enjoyment. This is God. He came that they might have life, that they might have life more abundantly. This is to mark the people of God. You want to display the image of God, be abundantly generous. Because our God is abundantly generous. I'd like to think of myself as generous sometimes. The thought I had in my mind was, was my kids. When they were growing up, we would go out to dinner. And the waiter would come around and, with the order and say, would you like anything to drink? And all my kids would go, right to me. Can we? Because that was splurging. That was, you know, we're like, because restaurants, they rip you off with their drinks. Y'all know that, right? That's how they make all their money. (laughs) They just charge you $7 for a a Coke that costs them two cents. And most of the time it was, well, mainly for health benefits. Like, no, we're drinking water. That's what we do. We're Hendry's. We drink water. And every once in a while, the image of God would come out. And that they would look, and I'd be like, get whatever you want. <laughs> God's not like me. He gives us water. But he gives us abundant wine, too. He's a good God. And by the way, one of the greatest things humanly we can do for one another is eat food together. At our mission members meeting, I was encouraging you guys, we were, we were encouraging you to, to try to make a commitment to maybe at least once a month have someone from our church family for dinner, for lunch, just spend time together, sit around a table, enjoy life, enjoy God, enjoy one another. I encourage you to do that. Verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Oh, we got to get through this quick here. (laughs) Primarily, there's spiritual death viewed here. There's also certainly physical death that we're going to see. But what I want you to see here is that the Word of God is given to Adam. Here's the commandment. Don't eat of the tree. You can have everything you want and and anything you want, but you can't have this. There's just this, this one thing I'm withholding. Let me ask you, did God withhold everything? All of it's beautiful. All of it's good. Just not this. And this was a test, a test for the man to see, will you walk by faith? And that's something to think about. This just struck me this past week, because a lot of times we think of pre-fall, I don't think of faith. I don't think of trust. I think of bliss and perfection and innocence. But yet Adam, even in his created state pre-fall, needed to trust God's word. He needed to walk by faith. And his failure was a failure to trust God. In this day if you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is God's way of saying, you're not your own. You don't belong to yourself. You're accountable to me. Your body is mine. Your your, your hands are mine. Your heart is mine. Your affections are mine. You are mine. You're my creation. You belong to me. And there's something inside of, of, of humanity that hates that. 
Something deeply sinful that wants to throw that off and longs for autonomy to be the captain of my own ship, to be a a self-made man. I did it my way. God did not create us in, in, in that way. God created us to follow His ways. The image I had in my mind as I think of those who would want to throw off God's good gifts of His, of his laws, of His ways, of, of, of creation, it's, it's, it's like walking backwards. I just had this picture of my mind just trying to walk all over the place. Just I can't do it. We weren't designed to do that. We were designed to walk forward. And so why would I, out of autonomy, and you could see it, couldn't you? I could see someone being like, God wants me walking forward. I'm walking backwards. Hmm. You keep hitting things and falling into things because God's creational norms don't change. It's like gravity. You jump off the building, you will fall. He's the God of absolute lordship. We belong to Him absolutely. He is Lord absolutely. And yet, what is this God of absolute lordship like? He's abundantly gracious. He's overflowing, joyful, outpouring of everything good upon his children. Even though paradise was lost through Adam, God is better to us than we deserve. How do I know that? Take a breath. Come on. That's grace. That's grace. Feel your heartbeat. That's grace. Every one of us could be in eternal damnation right this second. And yet here you are breathing. That's grace. And God would be just to punish us such. It's his kindness when we see it that leads us to repentance. You say, well, I'm living life, but man, I'm miserable right now. Well, even your misery is a gift from God. Because in your misery, you long for something better. You, 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 you long for, for home. You long for healing. And all of that is only found in Him, both here and now and in the age to come. And so even those miserable days can point us to life. Letter, or number three, the covenant God of marriage. I'm going to try to sum this up pretty quickly as we go through what shouldn't be covered quickly, but let's do it. Thank you. This section is the foundation of the institution of marriage, the institution of, of gender, male and female, which is so often questioned in our day and age today. It has great bearing on societal foundations that God intended that the man and the woman be a a spiritual functional unity walking in integrity serving him and keeping his commandments in the marriage relationship we see this letter a on the one thing that's not good verse 18 then the Lord God said it is not good that the man should be alone I will make him a helper fit for him So God creates the beautiful world. This beautiful paradise is is there. Eden's there. And then God says, there's just one thing I'm looking at. It's not good. 
It's not good that the man's alone. So I'm going to make him a helper fit for him. Not good. This, this is an highly emphatic. It's an emph- emphatic word here. That essentially it's bad for Adam to be alone. God intends marriage, generally speaking, for humanity. And that entails intimacy, a physical relationship, relationship itself modeled after God who does not exist in isolation but is triunity within himself. And so God says, I'm going to make a helper in Ezer. And a helper suitable for him or fit for him. Ezer negedo. The word Ezer means helper. It's not a demeaning term. How do we know that? 16 of the 19 times in Scripture that it's mentioned, it speaks of God Himself as our helper. It essentially describes one who provides what's lacking in the man. The one who who can do what the man alone cannot do. So man here is, is created in such a way that he needs, listen to me men, he needs the help of his wife. It signifies the essential contribution is to the man's inadequacy, not hers. And therefore, ish, this word for man, it's a different word for man. It's not good that the ish should be alone. And the ish is incomplete apart from isha. Suitable for, fit for him. The Hebrew means equal and and adequate. It it means according to his opposite. It means that the woman would would share the man's nature and that whatever the man received at creation, she too would have. Remember Genesis 1.27 makes it clear that God created the image of God in man as male and female. And so we see this story of the creation of, of woman But before then, we have a pause, what it seems like a pause, letter B. Adam names the animals. And that might throw us off, kind of like, what's going on here? You just said you're going to make him a helper fit for him, his perfect counterpart, to complement him in all things. And now, verse 19, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. Again, he gives names. He, he imitates God in bringing the world under his dominion by, by naming the animals. But why does God determine that it's not good for him to be alone and then sends him to name the animals? Shouldn't he have given him the woman first? And I see here that... that In fact, Adam has to first realize something. He has to come to the realization that it's not good to be alone. So so God doesn't squander his, his most precious gift on one who's unappreciative. God waits till Adam is prepared to appreciate the gift of the woman. By let me bring all these animals and look at, there's two of them. Oh, and there's two more. Oh, they all go together. Where's mine? They're not found in the animal world. I've got no one. So Adam, it says, found there, there, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Again, showing the radical discontinuity between human beings creating the image of God and, and the animal kingdom. And so let her see the creation of woman from man. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. You say, man, that's hard to understand. What happened there? Well, what happened was God 
took one of Adam's ribs and he closed up his flesh and, and, and he uh, made a woman out of it. That's what happened. <laughs> what I love about the rib, why the rib? A lot of commentators say different things, but it, Matthew Henry summed it up very well when he said that the woman is not made out of his head to top him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arms to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Verse 22, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. This is the first marriage, guys. God is walking Eve down the aisle. And then he turns around and officiates a wedding. It signifies the holy and ideal state of the marriage where God himself is the role of the attendant to the bride. He gives the man his wife. Verse 23, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And I love this. Here we have, these are Adam's only recorded words before the fall. And it's a poem. <laughs> How about that, dudes? <laughs> With poetry. He, he celebrates the covenantal bond of man and woman as husband and wife. And he says these beautiful words. This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And you, we hear that, and, and we often think, well, that was just him saying, oh, she looks like me. She's got hands like me, and, and she, you know, we're, we're a lot different than the chimpanzee. They had feet too, but not like hers. I like her feet a lot better. That's not what he is saying. He's making a statement of covenant loyalty. These, in essence, are the vows. He's not saying that, well, you're just like me. He's making a covenantal commitment to her. He's saying, in essence, what the men coming to King David to pronounce their loyalty to him in 1 Chronicles 11 said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. This is the basis for the marriage vows. Because what he's saying is that in strength, bone, and flesh, weakness, it's a covenantal commitment that's not dependent upon circumstances. For better, for worse. For richer, for poor. In sickness and in health, I give you all of me. I commit totally to you. I covenant with you. It's a total commitment that's unchanged by changing circumstances. That both of us share the characteristics of strength and bone, the strength and weaknesses, and, and we're bound together in it. It goes on and says that she shall be called woman, Adam says, because she was taken out of man. Here he, he names her woman, Isha, but also he, he names himself Ish. And, and earlier, Adam is named in Genesis in relation to the ground to the Adama, 
Adam comes from the Adama, but here when Adam sees his wife, when he sees the woman that God had created here, he names her in relationship to himself as his wife. And a man and woman in a marriage are never more like God than on their wedding day when they commit themselves unconditionally to one another. It's a beautiful display of the covenant love of God. And lastly, letter D, the gift of marriage. Therefore, because of all that came before, because of the covenant God giving this covenant gift creation of man and woman in his image. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This would be hugely important for these Israelites walking in the wilderness to understand, going into the promised land to understand when they would be tempted to break their vows. When they would be pulled away, and unfortunately, that's just what they did. Why Malachi rebukes them in Malachi when, when, he, when he tells them, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts what with, it, it with favor from your hand. And you say, why doesn't he? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? This is the call, and it's all rooted in creation. From verse 10, he had said, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? God creates the man and the woman, and he says, Because of the covenantal relationship that I created you in and that I put you in these bonds, you man, you Adam, in the future, all of the Adams, all of the Ishas are to leave their father and mother. Here we see even the covenantal marriage union is, 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 has priority over even the bond of parents. And you're to hold fast, you're to be united with your wife. Covenant commitment. One flesh. Showing God's intention. Marriage is to be monogamous and, 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 and it's to be of one flesh. So in essence, God, God creates Adam and He creates the, the, the woman from the rib. He, he, he creates through separation much as He did in Genesis 1 where He separates the waters from the waters and, and He takes and separates but then He says, but you must come back together. If you're going to reflect me, you be in union. Covenantal love. Certainly, sin has distorted this in our planet. Certainly, we've seen and felt the devastating effects of men and women not following God's ways. But God takes this very seriously. And my challenge for us today is to have courage to live out your calling as man and woman in marriage, as husband and wife, as created in the image of God. Verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
We close this chapter before we head into the destruction of chapter 3. But here we see this beautiful picture of openness and trust. They're at ease with one another, no fear of exploitation, no fear of evil, no fear of shame and abuse. With the loss of innocence in the fall, they will certainly feel shame and temptation. They're going to need to cover themselves, and we'll see that. And there's certainly so much here to be addressed that's not addressed here in, by Moses, I mean, including singleness and divorce and all of the difficult issues with marriage. But, but what Moses is doing here, he's laying out a general pattern for humanity and for his people in particular, and that pattern is marriage, covenantal marriage. And that, that, that creation is the basis of marriage. It's the basis of, of gender, of, of the roles of men and women, of the nature of marriage, the nature of, of human sexuality, the way that, that marriage points to Christ and, and His church. And there's a multitude of other issues to deal with in marriage and perhaps another time. Because it's about an hour. But for those of us who are married, wives, let me say this, you have a husband And God has given you the glorious dignity of being a helper to him that completes him. And you are not inferior to him. You are vital and essential and you complete him. In fact, you're God's gift to him. He needs you. And husbands, your wife is a gift from God. She is your completer. And God has provided the greatest gift, a helper that you need. And God is wiser and smarter than you. He knows what you need. Yeah, you don't know my wife. You don't know what we've been through. Let's talk about that. Way too many men think they know better than God. They're bound up in pride and arrogance and selfishness and childishness. And and they mistreat their wives and they don't value their wives. Stop. Rejoice in God's gift to marriage. And if you don't have a husband or a wife, God understands that. And He can give you everything you lack, everything you need. Next Sunday, we're going to see sin enter the world in this chapter. and The battle of the sexes is going to begin, but, but today we don't see that. Today doesn't start here because it's not God's design. And blessed be God who designs marriage, who joins a man and woman together because together, together a man and woman in marriage is better than all of the galaxies put together. It's more amazing than the, the, the great supernovas in the sky, more beautiful than the most beautiful sunsets, the, the galloping stallions that you see on the land, more majestic than the mightiest mountains deeper than the deepest canyons and trenches of the sea. And I fear too often we take it for granted. And it devastates. It devastates. Thankfully, the one who uniquely expresses the image of God the one who is the perfect image of God, the one who is God himself in human flesh. 
the Son of Man, the rider of the clouds. He is the true image and so God's true king on earth and he brings salvation to fallen men. He completes perfectly humanity's twofold function. He, he makes the church his bride. He gives his life for her. He rises from the grave. He conquers the dragon. He wins the bride and he fills the earth with spiritual children. He, he blesses his disciples. He fills them with the spirit of life and he brings everything under his dominion, including Satan and evil. And he enters the rest of God. And so as we have this picture of pre-fall humanity in front of us today, let's not allow the look at what's going on on Genesis 3 world of planet death get our eyes off of its Redeemer. 